We forecast prices and fundamentals. Whether you're a trader, producer, or consumer, you can hedge your bets with Montel's diverse forecasting portfolio. Contact us at salesatmontelnews.com for more info and a free trial. Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast, bringing you energy matters in an informal setting. In today's pod, we talk legal matters. We've previously discussed the market impact and geopolitical ramifications of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But today we'll look at the legal perspectives. Can Germany scrap the project without unleashing a flurry of writs? We will also talk about expected legislation from Brussels starting this month and our old favourite Brexit. I'm Richard Sverison, and helping me discuss these issues is Anna Stanich of ENA Law. A warm welcome to you, Anna. Hello, Richard. How are you? Fine, thanks. Fine, thanks. Uh, let's start off by discussing Nord Stream 2, Anna. Um, what are your expectations here? Will it be completed? Yes, I think it will be completed, but it's a question of when. I mean, we know that it's only about 150 kilometers that are left to be, to be actually laid in terms of pipeline. You've got Berlin is reluctant to cut off communication with Russia and on the other it wants to maintain a good relationship with the US. Germany's in a very difficult position here. What what are the options? I think Merkel has and the German parliament has been relatively clear on its position that the two matters, the alleged poisoning um, and the Nord Stream 2 completion are to be kept separate. So to the extent that any sanctions are imposed on Russia with respect to and the, the poisoning of the Russian opposition leader, that should be done by the European Union as a whole, whereas um, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline should be treated as a commercial project. And that's been the position of Germany for many years. So it's it's unlikely, I would say, and I think that's been confirmed last week, including by the German parliament, that this position would change. I think the key question is now is where the, where the things are for the pipeline in terms of German regulation. And here there is a hitch in the sense that the application by Nord Stream 2 to apply for a derogation um, before the German regulator has been rejected. That's now before the German courts. And it's a question of how long um, that challenge will take to be resolved and whether it will be resolved in Nord Stream 2's favour. The argument there is uh, whether a derogation can be granted under German law implementing the amendment to the third gas directive. Whether and and key, the key there is uh, whether the pipeline can be have been completed uh, by May of last year. And and uh, here the argument of Nord Stream two has been that the wording of being completed should be regarded as completed in terms of an investment decision being reached, whereas the German regulator has taken a a different approach to the interpretation and has said that to have to be completed means completed in terms of the technical laying of the pipeline as and as we know 150 kilometers of the pipeline hasn't yet been laid so there is a aspect of the of the debate that is before the german uh, national regulatory authorities and that can be where amongst other things, in addition to the sanctions threats that we saw heightened further in the last few days, could present uh, another basis for delay of the project. 
How do you expect this to pan out then in the coming months um, in, in the courts in Germany? So uh, my understanding is that the German courts could take a year to reach the decision on, on this matter of whether the derogation should be granted to Nord Stream 2 or not. In which case, I assume that Nord Stream 2 will try to apply for an exemption as a or to proceed with the project, assuming that it can proceed to lay the pipeline and try to complete the, the pipeline whilst it seeks the clarification of the court. And here it's the sanctions and the other measures, particularly adopted by the US, that are the hurdle. That is another one that they need to overcome. And as we know, a few days ago, the insurers have issued a recommendation which basically suggests that no one should be insuring any vessels trying to lay pipelines in either Turk Stream or for the case of discussion here, Nord Stream 2. Um, that is now, that is just a recommendation. Uh, presumably, there might be insurers willing to ignore that recommendation, but, but it is another hurdle now in front of Nord Stream 2's completion. So the threat of sanctions is a very real threat, then. I mean, this could put a stop or prevent some of these, the laying of this, this 150 uh, kilometers of pipeline that's still left to, to go. Well, I think the, the threat of sanctions is real. We know that um, in both chambers of the U.S. Congress, there are other proposals to further strengthen the, the sanctions that are currently in place. We, we saw the updated guidance of the U.S. State Department in July uh, with respect to CATSA, which further strengthened those sanctions by basically extending the sanctions threat to include any providers involved in even in the financial aspects of the activities of laying of the pipeline. So the screws are being tightened, that's for sure. My understanding, though, is that, you know, that pos there is possibility of finding insurers, for example, who will be willing to ignore what is currently a recommendation and there may be other ways in which to complete the pipeline laying, which may not involve parties from countries that would be directly affected or companies that would be directly affected or directly able to be sanctioned by the US. I think it certainly means that the completion will be costly. Um, it also means that the claims currently brought by Nord Stream 2 against the European Union um, in the UN Energy Charter Treaty that started already last year, 26th of September, would, you know, the grounds for bringing claims for damages may be even further strengthened. So there's a combination of carrots and sticks on both sides, I guess, but obviously far more on the, st the state side. But the, the damages is, is one that I think is one that concerns both the German government if it was to try to stop the project um, at this point in time on something that would be seen as a political interference rather than the law taking its course. Um, and obviously the same applies with respect to any claims against the European Union under the Energy Charter Treaty. Because on both domestically in Germany and within the European Parliament, for example, there is there is growing opposition to the pipeline and on on the basis of the alleged poisoning here of of the uh, of Alexei Navalny. So, is it a realistic option here, cancelling, or is it just as you say a separate matter? And in any case, would be too expensive. I would say that from a legal point of view, um, it's not really a realistic option in the sense that other than the the current basis on which the national regulator in Germany has not granted a derogation, which obviously is questioned by Nord Stream 2, but given the wording of the German law and, uh, and also the EU law that it, it implements, 
is a, uh, a val valid interpretation of it. I mean, it might have implications for a claim in damages, but that's a separate point. But other than that, there is nothing that German regulators or, or the German government, there is no other process in terms of permitting or anything else that could be a basis for, for stopping the project. So as German law, there's no basis for stopping the project. And so any stopping of the project would be seen as a political interference and would be uh, would give rise to a damages claim, both in the German courts and the Energy Charter Treaty, if, if no, you know, and there might be other other recourses. And and I think Germany has already had an experience of uh, with cancelling projects like the pullout from nuclear that has resulted in large compensations being paid. And again, it has been so far that the issue of the poisoning requires um, a European position to be taken rather than a, a German position. And, and finally, I think the terms of cost that you mentioned, the estimated costs to date of the pipeline are in terms of investment are about 13 billion, so about 7 billion of which is for the laying of the pipeline itself. And, and the remaining 6 million is, is to do with um, the actual costs of building the pipelines within, within Germany and other connections. And a half of those costs have been borne by European energy companies. So the damages claims would not only be by Nord Stream 2 itself, but would be claims by all the other companies involved. So the impact would be significant because we would, if we're talking only about delay, a, a delay damages claim, then that's a certain uh, estimate of figures. Of, but if we're talking about a complete halt of a project, then we would be looking at a claim for lost profits, future lost profits, and those would Colossal claim. You mentioned these companies involved in in the laying of the of the pipe in Germany. These are these are big international energy firms. I mean, how do you expect them to cope with the threat of of U.S. sanctions, which I presume will will continue anyway under a potential Biden presidency as well? I mean, I can't really comment on how they're going to take those. I mean, I, they will have legal advice on on ways in which they will uh, deal with it. I mean, at the moment. Uh, this is a big issue, but uh, for them, because at, on the one hand, they've got the sanctions threat, but on the other hand, they have the loss of an investment, which, as I say, is, is enormous and, and the loss of future profit. I think we should also place the Nord Stream 2 uh, within the larger context of the German ambitious and then the European Union targets. And as we know, at the State of the Union address in September, the European Commission has adopted a, a much more ambitious plan for increasing the 2030 targets already for achieving carbon neutrality. And it's now talking about increasing the CO2 targets to at least 50% and actually aiming for a 55% 55 reduction. In that context, the role of gas, although still unclear for the purposes of the, of the regulators and the European Parliament and the European Commission, but for the industry, I think fundamentally clear that the natural gas has to play a very important role in the transition to climate neutrality by 2050, then Nord Stream 2, you know, plays an important role in that achievement. And I think the German government and I think majority of the German parties recognize the importance of gas uh, to that transition. <clears throat> and I think here, one of the things that isn't uh, well understood, but I think is quite important and will be increasingly important over time for regulators is, is understanding the carbon footprint 
of the various gases, that natural gases that come into, or LNG that come into the European Union. And the carbon footprint of Russian gas is um, almost four times lower than that of US LNG. And that, with the discussion of introducing a carbon border adjustment mechanism, will be quite important. Since if that proposal is adopted and consultations are now ongoing, um, October of, well, at the end of this month, then it, we may well be well see the, the prices of U.S. gas after the carbon adjustment being, made, being uh, adopted are becoming much more expensive to Russian gas. And that will in itself become another issue for the European Union as to how, at what cost and how it wants to achieve its carbon targets and then the role of Russian gas in doing that. So it's a complex matter that there's lots of moving targets. That's interesting. I mean, the, the carbon border tax, it's rife with complexity. It's not something that you can put into place overnight, is it? I mean, I think, you know, I've, I've heard people say, well, this is going to take uh, five to 10 years to implement. So what's your view here? Should they go to implement it? Yes, the, um, the European Union has adopted an extremely ambitious uh, roadmap for achieving uh, carbon, carbon neutrality by 2050. And this, this roadmap is actually on target despite of COVID. And it's part of the European Green Deal. And, and, and as part of this roadmap of, of the comprehensive amendment, basically of not only energy law as a whole, um, but also of other aspects of, of law of the uh, European Union. I mean, we're talking about an industry strategy which will revamp uh, a lot of the ways in which industry will operate. And, and that's, that's already, um, the strategy is already being um, adopted. We have a biodiversity strategy that has been adopted that will have quite a significant impact on how we uh, deal with um, natural resources and in the environment going forward. So we have significant changes in legislation that are planned to be adopted. In fact, the European Commission plans to table uh, significant amendments to the energy law by June of next year, so that in time of the Slovene presidency, then it's envisaged that the six months from July to December will be key in the adoption of these new laws. And these laws, we're talking about uh, the hydrogen strategy and how it's going to be implemented and as part of that, we're talking about a complete a revamp or a revisiting of the renewable energy, uh, renewable energy directive, the energy efficiency directive, the alternative fuels infrastructure, the energy taxation directives, and so on. So we are, and, and state guidelines on how all of this is going to be done. We're, we're talking about the PCI mechanism being re uh, rethought in view of the decarbonization change in approach or more ambitious targets the 10E and the 10E10 being revised and, re and revising even the emissions trading scheme. So it's an extremely ambitious legislative agenda that the Commission wants to adopt in the next less than, less than eight, eight months. It's uh, an incredible package. I and mean, I think it's not so long ago since we had the, the clean energy package. Now this is coming on top of that. But how do you think this relates to the coronavirus pandemic? Is there an added element, added impetus for a green recovery to make the period after the pandemic even more of a, of a green transition? What's your view here, Anna? Well, I think that's certainly, uh, that's certainly how the European Commission wants the whole COVID uh, recovery package to be seen. The, I think the reality is probably somewhere di somewhat different 
in the sense that governments and are faced with financial crisis and, and fallout that is as significant and the, the reality of being able to impose on companies that are failing and have problems with liquidity are further requirements that they need to digitalize or that they will be able to access recovery funding if they become greener is a challenge, particularly because the majority of companies in the European Union are actually small and medium companies. And how they are able to, to face this double challenge is difficult to, to see. I mean, there is obviously an, uh, a promise of a huge amount of money as part of the recovery package. I mean, we're talking just, just in terms of the recovery package of over 750 billion worth of monies. But there are, the reality is when you start looking at them, and I've been trying to work with companies to see how they can access some of these grants and loans, it becomes difficult for them to even get the, doc, you know, the projects off the ground in terms of preparing them for presentation and the let alone finding a way to actually implement them and complete all the requirements in terms of administration of the monies once granted. And the reality is, is that the you know, Western European companies will probably be in a better position to, to be able to access these, this recovery funding, as are their governments. I mean, we've seen the difference in, in approach or, or the ability of governments to respond to COVID by granting state aid measures. And we've seen great unevenness in terms of the ability of, of states to do so. So that by, by May of this year, over 50% of all state aid notifications were by Germany and followed by Italy and France. Um, so that maybe 10% of all the other notifications were, were by the, uh, the remaining 25 member states. So that sort of gives us an indication of, of the readiness of governments and, and of companies to really be able to uh, respond or take advantage of, of this free cash or, well, not all of it is free, but to be able to use that. So I think it's a huge challenge. So I think COVID in reality places a, a huge difficulty uh, in, in achieving the green, uh, green objectives, which is why the role of gas in, in achieving those targets is, is going to be key. And so uh, the role of gas in the hydrogen strategy is something that needs to be revisited both by the German governments and, and, and more importantly by the European Commission. Because I think the reality is that without blue hydrogen, it's going to be difficult to achieve these targets, both in terms of, you know, the amount of volume of, of green hydrogen that can be created through electrolysis, but also in terms of the cost. The sheer cost of clean hydrogen is between two thirds or four times more expensive than hydrogen production from fossil fuels. And so this is part of the challenge that we have before us, let alone the challenge of how you actually adopt regulation that encourages the creation of markets which is what we need to do in order to create a hydrogen value chain, which is quite different from a prescriptive way of drafting legislation where you are actually regulating an existing market, as was the case with, for example, the, the first or second or third energy package, which was actually trying to regulate and liberalize an existing market. Going forward, we are talking about legislation that needs to enable the creation of new markets. So we are actually having to figure out a way of of drafting law in a completely different way. And I'm not sure um, that is understood well by members of parliament or, or the European Commission itself. 
That's very interesting, Anna. I mean, I think uh, we could maybe devote a whole podcast to to hydrogen and and the future of uh, of the gas in Europe's energy mix. But I think if I if I return to what you were saying about um, the sort of post COVID recovery. You highlighted the small and medium-sized firms that are actually, you know, key to any, will be key to any energy transition. Do you expect some of these to potentially go under in the months to come as, as only you highlighted the countries that were, you know, using state aid funds and chiefly, you know, large European companies? I mean, I'm thinking countries, sorry, not companies. What's your view here? I think you're right when you said countries and companies, because a lot of the comp- countries that had sought state aid to date have sorted actually for for large companies. So we've seen a huge amount of money uh, given to obviously airline companies, um, companies like Adidas in Germany, but also uh, large travel companies and so on. Um, I mean, of course, there have been, there has been assistance to, uh, to smaller companies and tourist industry and so on. But I think the, I think the reality is, is that um, the, the assistance are the most vulnerable in 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 the in the forthcoming financial crisis, and I think there's little doubt that that is coming. The, the smaller, medium-sized companies are are going to be largely affected, to the extent that the the green recovery fund is meant to assist them. Uh, the difficulties are that it's a highly complicated process. I mean, just understanding which fund you should apply to. And how, and to the extent that those funds are actually being managed by member states themselves that have to in turn set up new instruments that currently don't exist in order to, to dish out the money, um, is, is hugely challenging. I mean, we just had a, a round table yesterday in Slovenia with uh, the leading export bank and, uh, and a number of their funds that are meant to assist small and medium sized companies and so on. And they are, they basically are saying that they don't have the instruments in place in order to be actually able to move forward or to to di- distribute the funds that will be available uh, as part of the recovery fund. That's fascinating. I think, um, the, as you say, the reality often will be will be quite different to what we'll be hearing in in terms of the recovery and and the green green deal. If I can just touch finally on a matter that we we have just discussed before um, on the pod, and that's that's Brexit. I mean, we're coming close to the uh, the self-imposed deadline by the by the UK government. How do you view this? Do you expect there to be a a, a no deal Brexit, or do you, will the, the coming weeks see a flurry of, of deals? Are you referring to the October deadline as the UK self-imposed deadline? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fifteenth of October, I think, it is isn't it? I mean, the the self imposed deadline of of June, but Boris Johnson deadline was obviously missed, and many other deadlines were missed. I think the October deadline is a more real deadline in terms that it's actually a deadline set by the by the requirements of the European Union to ensure that whatever, if there was to be a deal, that deal could be adopted and passed in time for the thirty first of December when the transition period ends. So I think the challenge is, is a, uh, the deadline is actually a real one in, in that respect. And so what about two weeks are now left to try to hammer out a deal or a bit more than that, the two weeks in terms of negotiations. I mean, I think some moves seem to be made yesterday by the UK to try to overcome one of the key sticking points and that's respect to fisheries. Uh, the offer seems to be that of a three, an additional three-year transition period, which would be in the transition period 
between today when European Union has a complete access to UK fishery fishing waters to uh, a period at the end of the transition period where a new deal would need to be set as to what the rights would be. Um, and that would be so whether that is uh, acceptable to the European Union, I think we'll see probably in the next few days. And obviously the other remaining sticking points um, are, are state aid. And then, of course, uh, the highly contentious uh, internal market bill, which was found by the by the parliament, by the House of Commons of the UK on Wednesday, the 30th of September. Um, and, and, and as we know, the European Union has been very clear that the bill, if it is adopted into an act, um, it's now currently going to before the House of Lords, but ultimately it will be adopted because the House of Lords, I mean, it's like a ping pong uh, session and it's the House of Commons that, that ultimately decides. The European Union has been very clear to say that the adoption of that act would be considered a breach of the withdrawal agreement and has threatened with legal proceedings over it. So there's certainly huge amount of obstacles in trying to reach an agreement. I still think that an agreement will be reached at the very uh, last minute. Um, but the key is that that agreement is going to provide very little comfort to businesses on, and to people operating on both sides of, of the border, and particularly in, the, in Northern Ireland. So um, it will be a very limited trade agreement. Uh, there may be a few more things that might be able to be agreed between now and the deadline. But the reality that the border complications, the clearances and everything else that will need to be put in place will simply not be there on time. We will probably see huge uh, lines of trucks and at the very least uh, on the borders um, on the 1st of January of next year. I'm sure this is something that we can return to, Anna. I mean, you can also dedicate a whole podcast to this topic. But um, I think that's about all from the Montel Weekly podcast this week. Thank you very much, Anna, for joining us. And I'm sure we'll look to invite you back and discuss uh, how this all panned out at, at a future date. Thank you very much, Richard, and have a good day. Thank you. You too. You can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Montel Weekly Podcast. Please direct message any suggestions, questions, or let us know if you'd like to be a guest. Uh, you can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please leave us a review if you can. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>